0: forty four got it okay, <laughs> okay let me read this and then we'll pray And he went down to Capernaum a city of Galilee and he was teaching them on the Sabbath and they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them, and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you um, for bringing everyone here who is here and um, giving us this chance to Look at, uh, look at this passage and understand it and apply it to our lives. Um, I pray that you would bless our um, encounter with this word, that you would use it to change us, that you would use it to open, open our minds, open our hearts, um, that we would leave knowing you better and um, that we would leave following you um, as we go throughout the rest of our day. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we, today, we live in a culture that is obsessed with personal optimization and techniques. So for every problem you have, there is an app, or a personality test, or an essential oil maybe, or a diet, or a therapeutic aid of some kind, a procedure, an exercise regimen, a mental framework that you need to adopt, I came across this, this specific one a couple years ago, um, and I, I saved it because I was like, one of these days I'm gonna use this as a sermon illustration. <laughs> um, but it was an ad for this new wearable device. Um, and I'm not gonna tell you what it is because they're not paying me, so I'm not gonna give them free advertising. Um, but part of the ad said this, it quote, uses gentle vibrations to signal safety to the brain, training your body to recover from stress more quickly. The device works with a mobile app with modes for sleep, focus, relaxation, meditation, and more, so you can decide how you want to feel and when you want to feel it. Pretty, pretty incredible, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, you can probably Google that and find out what it is. Um, Those two years ago, so I don't know if they still make them. But, um, but countless people and organizations spend their every waking hour thinking of what your problems are and trying to find a way to convince you that they have found the secret to solving your problems. You can easily become convinced that if you just kind of assemble the right routines um, or if you find the right foods or the right tools, or the right ways of thinking, you'll finally experience freedom from stress in this case or from pain or frustration or sickness or whatever, whatever it is that drags you down. Um, if you find the right person maybe who's figured out the right secrets, you can crack the code um, and you can finally feel good and be successful. But while all these things, they are or they can be good servants, they are terrible masters. And once you kind of jump on this treadmill of you know, salvation through self-optimization and technical improvement, it's only a matter of time before you realize that you're not going anywhere and that these things that promise life are just going to be replaced by the next thing. Um, in 10 years, new, a new thing that you need or that you need to adopt or change about yourself. So, I want to start by just asking you what is that thing for you right now? And what is that problem that if you think, you know, if I could only find out the secret or, or the right thing to buy um, or the right tool or the right person, then I would be at rest. Then I'd be free. Then I'd be whole, healed. Or what is it that you're pursuing right now that, that's making these big promises? Not just to be helpful or useful in a limited way, but to kind of make your whole world right again. What is that thing for you? Good. Yes, the answer is Jesus. <laughs> um, but may, so it maybe may if you aren't in that place, what are you tempted to make that thing? Today's passage, it gives us um, a powerful testimony to the reality and the promise of freedom, of rest, of healing, which Drew talked about last week. But it does so by focusing our attention not on a new technique or a new tool or a trick, but on a person, but not just any person. And the gospel gives us the answer to this problem. The question this text and the gospel of Luke as a whole asks is tied up with the wonder that we see at the words of Jesus. And the question is, who is this? Who is Jesus? And what we'll see, I hope, is this. Jesus' word has the power and the authority to drive out evil and death and to bring freedom and rest, showing him to be who the evil spirits say that he is the Holy One of God, the Son of God, the Messiah. So before we dig into the specifics of this passage, I want to just look at where we're at in the book of Luke. Um, so a little bit of context. And One of the distinct highlights of Luke's gospel and his sequel, the book of Acts, is the universal nature of God's salvation through Jesus. It's for all people groups, for all kinds of people, everyone who turns to God in Christ. This has significant social implications. Jesus, we see through the gospel repeatedly, he turns away from the proud and from the hypocrites, um, from those who kind of presume upon their status, their background, particular things about their culture. And he turns towards those who are relegated to positions of helplessness, those who are sick, who are weak, who are kind of outside. He comes for the sick, not for the, you know, he says, I don't come for the well. But what he means is, I don't come for the fake healthy, whose, whose health is just a surface illusion. He comes for the oppressed, not for the kind of fake free, who are really enslaved to their own desires, but are blind to it. And that's, that's been a dominant theme in the book so far as we've, looked, as we've gone through it, and especially in last week's pres- passage that, that Drew preached on, where, um, where Luke frames Jesus' whole mission with Jesus' declaration that that prophecy in Isaiah was being fulfilled through him. Specifically, he highlights the, the good news to the poor, the oppressed, the disabled, the captive, that there, there's freedom and that there's healing in his coming, in his coming kingdom. And then Luke takes us to see Jesus' ministry in Capernaum, which is a city on the shores of Galilee, where Luke gives us today this action-packed account of Jesus demonstrating what he just preached in Nazareth, or probably what he had, he probably is doing a flashback here because the people in Nazareth say, you know, do for us what you did in Capernaum. So this is probably sort of Luke saying like, what they were talking about, what you did in Capernaum, let me tell you what that was. Um, but in the flow of Luke's passage, Luke's showing Jesus preaching, this, this is what I'm all about, and then Jesus is now doing this thing. And the key to the specific message in this passage is seen in the way that people respond to Jesus, um, which is often the way that you kind of know what the point of a lot of the passages in the gospel are, um, where the emphasis falls in the passage. There's a lot of passages recording healings and exorcisms, right? They're all over, all over the gospels. But how does this particular one show us the significance of these miracles? As I just said um, a little bit ago, the key question of the gospel and of this passage is, who is this? But it asks that question by asking another question that can't be separated from it, which is, what is this word? And it answers these questions by taking us through um, a day in the life of Jesus, where he has, as we'll see, several appointments that he has to make or that he chooses to make. So let's look at it. The first, first, we have appointment number one um, on Jesus' busy Sabbath day. It's the Sabbath. um, And that appointment is in the synagogue uh, or the local church in Capernaum. So look at verses 31 and 32. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So he fills in here as the kind of preacher for the day, uh, probably the same thing that we saw that he did in Nazareth um, in the last passage last week, which would have been a pretty typical synagogue pattern. You know, a rabbi would get up, read the passage for the day, and then teach on it, preach on it, explain the meaning. Which, um, this is is kind of a side note, you know, as Drew likes to say, this one, this is free of charge, you know, a little extra. But um, this kind of highlights how uh, Christian worship, and what we see that we do in church, doesn't just arise out of nowhere. Um, you know, it's not like Christians just kind of made stuff up um, that we now have all do today. Um, the Christians were at the very beginning and still throughout history of the church, we've always looked back to the patterns and the, and the themes and the significance of what they did in the Old Testament and what they did in the synagogues, which was kind of a continuation of, that, of the Old Testament patterns. So um, that's one of the reasons why I'm up here reading a passage and then explaining it, because that's what Jesus did. Um, that's what the Old Testament saints did. Um, so, Jesus' sermon is probably longer than the one that he preached in last week's passage, which is maybe the shortest sermon in the history of the world. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That was his whole sermon. Um, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't help you out there. Um, not only because I'm not fulfilling scripture, but because um, that's not what it's about. Um, but here, he's probably doing some extended teaching, and their response, uh, which is important, and it, it contrasts the way people responded in Nazareth, is, Uh, astonishment at the authority of his word, the authority of his words. But his teaching in this passage doesn't just have authority. Jesus, he's not just right, he's not just correct. He's also powerful. And we see this immediately, um, all of a sudden, this unclean spirit is revealed to have been in their midst, to possessing a man in in church. There's a demon in church. Um, And he responds with, uh, the demon responds with a different kind of surprise, uh, not astonishment, um, which is more reverent, but more of a shock and surprise because he thinks that he's, um, he's done for. So look in verse 33, the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! I don't, I don't really like that translation, but that's what the ESV says. Um, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. So the, the ha there, or I don't know, your, your translation probably says something different. It could also mean something like, you know, leave us alone or go away. But it could also be like an expression of surprise or shock. But when it says ha, it just makes it look like he's laughing at Jesus. I don't think that's what's happening. Um, but we see that same response from demons in other encounters that they have with Jesus throughout the Gospels. They want him away. Stop messing with, we got a good thing going here. Go away, like, stop messing with us. Right, they, uh, these unclean spirits, as, like this one, recognize Jesus' identity very clearly. They know his power, they know his authority, and they're terrified and they don't want anything to do with him. Right, this, um, this one kind of is wondering if Jesus has come to bring the final but delayed judgment on these rebel spirits, you know, casting them out into the abyss. Um, the place where they're eventually doomed to go. That's why he says, are you here to destroy us? Like, I didn't think it was time for that yet. Um, and he calls Jesus uh, the Holy One of God, which this highlights Jesus' unique divine identity, his perfection, his unique status in nature. And ultimately, um, for Luke, this Holy One title should make us think of Isaiah, right, where Isaiah presents God especially as, as the Holy One of Israel. And then, of course, you have the, the famous throne room scene in Isaiah 6, where um, we kind of see this, this beautiful and terrifying holiness of God. So this demon knows exactly who Jesus is. And Jesus rebukes him and tells him to be quiet and leave. And then the people respond again in verse 36. They were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. This word, again, is not only authoritative to teach what is true, which is what he was doing preaching in the synagogue, right, that's, that's not all. It has power and authority over real realities, right, over spiritual beings, over evil beings. The people go from astonished to amazed that he can do, that he can do this, that the power of this man's words, which can um, effortless, effortlessly direct uh, the spirit world. Right? He, he needs no special rituals or incantations. You know, he's not really trying really hard or fighting really hard to, to make it happen. He simply speaks, and it's done. And it's done without harming the guy. Um, the demon says, have you come to destroy us? I think that implicit in there is the demon's desire to, and kind of almost threat to Jesus, to take the guy out with him when he casts him out. You know, if he goes, then I go. And that's why the text says, he throws the man on the floor as the demon is cast out, but that the man is unharmed. So, this should remind you of a very famous scene in a movie. Yes, Drew, um, the, the great movie, Lord of the Rings. Um, I, don't, I don't force this, it's just, it's just right in my lap, okay? It fits perfectly. Um, tr- but really, though, So there's a scene in the second movie, The Two Towers, that is be- the best scene I've seen of, of, of the, the drama of, um, of exorcism or the drama of casting out evil. It's a great scene where, um, you know, Gandalf is coming into the throne room of this king who's basically under the power of an evil wizard. Okay, this is very applicable, so the laughing can, die, you know, just calm down. Um, so, so Gandalf goes into the throne of this king. He's, he's under the control of this evil wizard. He's, his whole physical appearance has become frail and old, and, and he's just like, uh, looks like he's on death's door. Um, and he, Gandalf is attempting to drive this evil wizard away from this king named Theoden. Um, and then the evil wizard kind of through Theoden says, If I go, Theoden dies. And then Gandalf responds... As a kind of picture of Christ, you did not kill me, and you will not kill him. And then he drives him out, and then the king is able to come back to his senses. He's able to regain his strength, and then he ends up um, leading his people in defense against these dark armies. Um, I won't spoil the rest of it, but it's a great scene. You should watch the movie if you haven't already. Um, you should expect this if you, if you don't already, that this is going to come up. And so the best way for you to prepare for my sermons is for you to watch the Lord of the Rings movies <laughs> and, and even read the Lord of the Rings books. So, um, but it's that same dynamic, right, of, of Satan. He can't win, and he knows that. All he can do is try to take people down with him. But Jesus has the power to release us from that evil without us being harmed. And maybe, maybe you kind of know these threats of Satan. Maybe you're afraid to let Jesus heal you or free you because you fear that that process will destroy you. You know, maybe Satan's lying to you and he's promising more pain if you try to flee. Um, he wants us to think that it's going to be like an invasive or a dangerous surgery which could, you know, could kill the patient in the process. Uh, you know, he wants us to be like, like a runaway slave who fears that he'll be brought back to his master and beaten. He wants us to be like like an abused spouse, threatened by their spouse to never try to leave. But Jesus says that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. He has the power to free you and to protect you from any danger without any harm. And that's because, as we saw earlier in in Luke, he himself has overcome the evil one. This scene is intimately tied to Jesus' temptation in the desert that we looked at a few weeks ago. He is the strong warrior who's battle-hardened, who's demonstrated his superiority over the enemy, who has parried all of the devil's attacks and is now uniquely equipped to take on these lesser minions as he goes throughout his ministry in Israel. All right, Jesus really can only do what he does because he has weathered the wilderness and he's come out victorious. And then this takes us in our passage to um, his, his second appointment, which is in Simon's house. Now, this is Simon... Um, the same, uh, the same Simon who's called Peter, one of Jesus' 12 apostles. Um, and uh, we read this in verse 38. He arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. So this story, is, it's back-to-back with the exorcism, and it shows Jesus' power and authority not only over evil spirits, but even over the forces of sickness and of death, right? Peter's mother-in-law is sick. She's with a high fever, um, which that's indicating here that this is a dire situation. This is a life-threatening fever. And the language is striking because it speaks of the fever in the same way that you see it speaking of the demon possession, right? What does he do to the fever? He rebukes it and it leaves her, right? The woman is almost presented as, as possessed by this fever held captive to this fever in bondage to death. And Jesus frees her. Jesus came to earth to proclaim good news. And this is a good news that doesn't just talk about freedom. It creates freedom. It creates what he talks about. All right, we, don't, we don't see a crowd reaction here, but, but I think perhaps Luke is leaving us room now to ask the same question. What word is this? Even death itself is defeated with a word. Then appointment number three comes in verse 40, in the form of great crowds, right? These two incidents happen, and you can imagine words getting around. We're told in verse 37, people are talking about it, and now everybody's flocking to him. And it says this, When the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So the sun is setting on the Sabbath day. And this is a, this is a significant detail um, that's going to foreshadow and it's going to set up the future kind of Sabbath showdowns between Jesus and the rel- religious leadership. Um, sunset, uh, we, th- we think of a day starting kind of, you know, at midnight, I guess, because we have kind of like calendar clock time in our heads. But for Jewish culture, um, the sun, um, sundown marks the, the traditional end of the day um, and the beginning of a new day. And so on the Sabbath, as some of you know, there are really strict guidelines on the work you're able to do and how far you're able to travel. And those guidelines um, in Scripture and in the Old Testament, they, those were always meant to be uh, a means of providing rest to the people of God, especially those most disadvantaged and powerless and overworked. So, The Sabbath, it was never meant to be used as a wall uh, dividing people from rest, or or separating people from rest, preventing them from receiving the freedom and the healing that they needed to enter into true rest. But that was what it had become under the corrupt and, and hypocritical misunderstanding and abuse of the law that we'll see Jesus challenging throughout the rest of his ministry. So tragically, in this story, it's only now as the sun sets that all the people who heard reports about him now feel free to come to Jesus, um, who's gonna show them the true meaning and the purpose of the Sabbath, um, bringing, their, bringing their sick to health and, and freeing the possessed. So Jesus, in the story, he casts out, he heals many, he casts out many demons. Um, they all accurately identify him as the son of God, God in the flesh. Um, and and this, this title also has a, has a um, connotation of fulfilling the calling of the faithful son that Israel was meant to be. Um, but Jesus silences them. And I won't get too much into that right now, but um, most likely because it's not time to fully reveal his identity, because people wouldn't understand what he was about, um, and it's not time for him to make that perfectly clear. But it might also be because he doesn't want demons to be his witnesses. Right? He's going to be accused later of being in league with Satan, and if a bunch of demons are the ones going around telling everyone who he is, that gives more credence to that. But there still is a great irony in the story that it's the demons his enemies, they are the ones who know who Jesus is while his own people are confused uh, or opposed to him. So the final section of this passage, Jesus probably exhausted because he's presumably been healing for who knows how long, maybe all night. And the next morning, he withdraws to the wilderness, um, to a desolate place. It says, when it was day, he departed, went to a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So the wilderness um, in scripture is a place where bad things happen, right? Unbelief, testing, um, judgment. But it's also a unique place of blessing. God sustains his people in the wilderness in ways that help them recognize he's their source of life. God teaches in the wilderness. Um, the, the main time this happens, and kind of the paradigm of it, is uh, on, the, on the Mount Sinai when he gives the law to Moses. And Jesus w- withdraws repeatedly in his ministry to the wilderness to pray, which I was wrestling with this. I, you know, I was kind of, what's the significance of this? Um, it mentions it again uh, in chapter 5. Um, and I think that in his temptation, in some way that I don't fully understand all the meaning of this, He sanctified the wilderness as a place of of sustaining and of victory. A place where he goes um, not to fail or turn back from his mission, like Israel did when she went to the wilderness and failed to trust God, but to renew his vision and to receive life from his father. So he goes back to that place of victory and and life uh, because he was able to overcome the temptation of the wilderness. So the people of Galilee, they, they hear him going out to the wilderness, And then they go out in droves to to see him and to try to keep him from leaving them. But Jesus knows that his mission is not just to be kind of a a tribal king of Galilee, and it's not to heal even as many individuals as he possibly can in his life. He leaves because his mission is driven by his word, his preaching. He says, this is the purpose. This is my purpose. This is the purpose for which I came, to preach the good news of the kingdom in every town. And he goes on to preach because it's through the proclamation of this good news, this gospel, that eyes are opened and that people are changed. The proclamation of is, is how the work of Jesus to defeat evil, bring life, atone for sin, is interpreted and it's applied. And Jesus never loses sight of the, really the fundamentally word-centered character of his ministry, which deeply informs the, what we'll see as the ministry of the apostles and of the ministry of the church throughout history. So all this whole, you know, kind of scene, this day in the life of Jesus, it leads us to what I want to consider as the fundamental question in the passage, a question that the text gives us in the mouth of the people. What is this word? All right, your Bible might translate it slightly differently, but the idea is basically the same. Um, what kind of words is this man speaking? And I like, you know, the ESV and the King James, um, they translated what is this word? And I like that translation because... I think it brings to mind, as it should, this bigger picture that Scripture gives us of the Word of God. It's a picture of power and authority, of of the being of the Creator God embodied in the person of Jesus. We don't have time to go through all these passages, but on your handout there's a list of some of them you can look at uh, later. Um, But when the New Testament speaks of the Word of God, or Jesus as the Word, it's calling up this really rich theology of God's word, his speaking, and that's in the whole Old Testament. Right, the word of God is the word in Genesis 1, where God merely speaks and he creates everything out of nothing. The word of God is the word that, that builds up, that tears down, that opens and closes eyes and ears. The word reflects all the perfection and the beauty and the power and the certainty that we see in Psalm 119 over and over. right, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's all just about the perfection and the beauty and, and how amazing the word of God is. It's his word made flesh that comes among us. We See that in John 1, making that connection to reveal us the father, to create new life, to open our eyes. His word in scripture, it's not merely just ink and paper. It's God's speech to us. It's not arising from you know, kind of the intent or the desires of men, but it comes from God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, we, you can see this kind of power in human words. We've all experienced this, you know, when someone that, whose opinion you really value highly praises you, the effect that that has on you, when someone who you care about tells you that they love you, or maybe when you receive criticism that cuts to kind of your deepest fears and, and insecurities. I've seen firsthand in my life and in others' lives the blessing or the wounds that a father's words can have on somebody's soul. So how much more God's own word? Have you encountered the power of his word, of this word? Um, I had a a moment recently where I was struck by this. Um, We went on vacation for a couple weeks over Christmas and you guys know how Christmas vacation is with your routines, and you know I try to get up in the mornings and um, read some psalms and pray, but I didn't do it for a single day the entire Christmas vacation, um, and I it was a, it was a rough vacation in a lot of ways. Um, it also ended us with us getting like violently ill um, on the plane ride back. So we're driving up over the the Siskiyous and um, Susie puts on. Uh, this audio version of Psalm 1, like a musical version of Psalm 1. And as soon as that Psalm came on, I just started crying. Which, if you know me, I'm I have a pretty cold heart. I don't cry or show emotion very much. It may be obvious. Um, but, but as soon as I heard Psalm 1, that it just brought me to tears. And I was just overwhelmed. And I told Sue, I was like, I don't know why I'm crying. <laughs> I never cry. Um, and, What I think God was showing me in that moment was the power of his word. I'd gone two weeks without encountering his word. Um, It's kind of, it reminded me too of, those of you who've had children, um, when you have a little baby and you don't sleep and you're exhausted and you kind of feel like you're dying. Um, Months of no sleep. And there was this one time where after, I think it was after we had Jemima, and Susie went on a trip to go see her family. And so they were gone for a week, which was very sad. But also I could sleep. And by the, by the end of that week, I, I felt like I was like coming back to life, you know? Like I could think again. Um, I felt like this like parched dry ground, just like getting water. Um, it, it was a similar experience to that of just the, encountering the word after a drought, you know? It's like a land that is in drought and then finally has rain. The word is powerful. Right. It has the power to heal. It has the power to free you. Right. He has the power to sustain you in the wilderness because we cannot live by bread alone. He has the power to renew your mind, to give you God's perspective on your life and on, his, on this world, the power to change you. Jesus has and is the powerful and authoritative word that the world needs and that we need. Now, you might be wondering, that's great, but how do I access this word? You know, how does this powerful word come to me, come to us? Well, first, step one is to come to Jesus if you've not. If you've spent your life away from him, come to him. He is the word. He is the, the revelation, the showing of God. Give your life to him. Receive life from him. That's step one. But second, saturate yourself in the word, in the words of Jesus. Listen to it. Sing it. Hear it. Hear it preached. Speak it to one another. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And this kind of highlights, you know, this is another freebie, this highlights the primacy of the communal nature of encountering the word. Right? The word is, when you look at Scripture, the word is first and foremost meant to be received in community. It's not first and foremost. Um, meant to be read kind of inside your head by yourself. Not the least because it's only been in the last hundred or so years that, anyone, that most people could do that. Um, that is good, and you should do that. Um, but when the Bible talks about hearing God's word, it literally means hearing, hearing it, singing it, hearing it from teachers and speakers, speaking it to one another. Now, you might also be thinking, you know, well, I wish that I could just have Jesus you know, literally walk up to me like these people did in the Bible. Um, or have some crazy vision or dream or experience. Um, First highlight that the people who Jesus walks right in front of often don't recognize him and hate him. Um, But Jesus knew that this would be our longing, to to be close to him, to see him, Um, and the disciples' longing, which is why he told the disciples um, in his kind of farewell address before he is crucified in the Gospel of John, that he was not going to leave them orphaned when he ascended into heaven. He was going to send them the Spirit who would bring to their minds everything that he taught them so that they could write it down and pass it on to the church in Scripture. In fact, Jesus said it was better that he go away so that he could send his Spirit to do this work. And Peter reflects on this really powerfully in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 when he says, um, in, in this he's recalling the transfiguration encounter um, that's recorded in Luke chapter 9 and other places, where, where um, they see, you know, a few of the disciples go up on this mountain. They see Jesus. He, like, starts shining brilliantly, just like Gandalf does when he sees Therodon. And there's, you know, they see the glory of Jesus. And um, paraphrasing the, this verse a little bit, or the verses in Peter, he says, We, the apostles, saw Jesus himself transfigured and shining in glory with the voice of the Father speaking. And we have something more sure or your translation might say more fully confirmed, the prophetic words of Scripture that Christians need to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. We have something certain and sure, even better than what the disciples had before Pentecost and the writing of Scripture. We have the Spirit Word that brings us to the Father and and, and the Father to us. His Spirit in us takes the Word up and brings it to life in us. Hebrews 4:12 says, "The word of God is living and active. It's not dead ink on a page. It's not a dead tree wrapped between you know, a cow carcass. By the spirit, it's living and active." First Peter 1 Peter 1:23 says, "You have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God, the word that is the good news that was preached to you." So I'll ask you, what is this word? What words are these? Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that sounds nice, but it hasn't worked for me. You know, I've asked God to do things for me, and nothing happened. You may be asking, why is this word not coming with power and authority into my life? Um, and this kind of highlights what I think is an important distinction between what Scripture holds out and what we were talking about at, you know, what I was talking about at the very beginning, this technique and optimization thing. This isn't, uh, this isn't a, a set of steps. If you follow these steps, you get this result, right? This isn't a technology, right? Now, the, this problem of, of being in drought or not experiencing the power of the word of God has ultimately a pastoral question that doesn't have kind of a one-size-fits-all response or answer. Um, or for some of you, maybe any answer at all in a, in a full sense, um, this side of Christ's return. But let me give you just a few things to think about. You could think of this as kind of some diagnostic questions to run through if you're in that place of kind of frustration. Why isn't God coming? powerfully into my life. So first, the Bible acknowledges this issue and it speaks, speaks of it as real. Right? Paul speaks to this very clearly um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You feel free to turn there. I'll just read a couple of verses of that. Um, so Paul says, to keep me from being, becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul knows, Paul knows deeply about this experience of desiring hearing, earnestly praying for healing. And God saying, I have a different plan right now for you. Beyond that, though, um, some questions to ask. First, what is your orientation to Jesus? How do you approach Jesus? Are you opposed to him or to his teaching? Do you accept him as he is? Right? This is um, not in Luke's account, but uh, in Matthew's. Um, the text says that uh, the people in Nazareth who, who didn't basically accept Jesus for who he was... Um, that Jesus could do no mighty work there, and says Jesus marveled at their unbelief. So are you? if you're opposed to Jesus, or if you're saying, Jesus, I want this good thing you can do for me, but I don't want the whole, you know, like, I don't really like this about you, but I like this about you, is that the way you're approaching Jesus? Do you have faith, right? There's several passages, um, one in Luke, Luke chapter 8, where Jesus heals a woman and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. And this isn't like faith healing, like you need to have you know, X X amount of faith or a certain percentage of faith. It's not that at all. Um, The the Bible doesn't talk about us kind of like gathering together enough faith for God to to like make God do something for us. What this means is, do you trust Jesus? Do you put your trust in Jesus? Are you asking according to his will? James chapter 4 says, you do not have because you do not ask God. So it's first and foremost, like, ask him. But then it says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So what, do you, what is your purpose in life? What are you using your life for? What are you hoping for? Why do you want this thing that God, you want freedom from or healing from? Are you encountering the word by the clear means that he's given? The church, scripture, prayer. Or are you just looking for kind of another sign, as the Pharisees so often were, you know, with Jesus standing right in front of them? Are you kind of implicitly saying, God, what you've promised and given me is not enough. I demand more. You know, I need more. Or, you know, I know that I'm not following the pattern of life that you've laid out in your word, but I want you to fix my problems anyways. God is merciful. God is gracious. But there is a difference between his mercy and his grace and us being presumptuous on his grace to excuse our kind of willing disobedience and unbelief. But ultimately... Um, You know, none of those may apply to you. You know, I'm not at all trying to indicate that, you know, if you're not experiencing healing, that's your fault. Ultimately, there's no special trick or secret that brings deliverance or healing. The righteous suffer. The wicked suffer. Suffering is promised to us. Um, In fact, Paul talks about it as one of the ways that Christians walk the path of Jesus and know him and show him and experience resurrection life. That's in Philippians 3, if you want to look at that. All, All Christians suffer and die eventually. But in Christ, that doorway is transformed to an entrance to the presence of Jesus. The Bible is, is full of stories of healing and freedom. We're seeing that today in our passage. But The Bible also has the story of Job. It has the story of Lazarus, where Jesus intentionally waits until Lazarus dies so that he can show everyone his resurrection power. It has the story of Jesus' life, of Paul's life. Right? Faith doesn't say, you know, if God doesn't fix this right now, forget it. Faith says, with the three men of Daniel in the fiery furnace, I know that you can deliver, but even if you don't, I'll still follow and trust you. And for some of us in this life, there's only, um, only to wait and to continue to pray and to allow suffering to prepare us for glory. This is the message of Romans 8 where Paul says, this light and momentary affliction is nothing compared to the glories that are coming. And Paul, you know, I've not experienced tremendous great suffering, but Paul Knew that, and still he could say, This is light and momentary affliction. Sometimes there isn't an answer. Sometimes there's only just hope that believes in God, that he's good, and that his promises are true. So I'll end by asking the same question again, which you may be tired of hearing. What is this word? Who is this word? Who is this man? Who is Jesus? Luke tells us that he is the one with all the authority and power to free you. His words are freedom, his words are life. If you're suffering, if you're hurting, if you are are captive to Satan, harassed by his servants, take up the word of God. Feed on that word. Come to Jesus, he offers you rest. Uh, His burden is easy and it's light. He's defeated Satan, he's defeated death and they have no hold on him. So he can fight for you and he can free you. And when, when you're tempted to turn away, when tempted to stay away, um, when tempted to tell Jesus like the demons do, you know, leave me alone. Um, My prayer is that we would remember the words um, that Peter speaks in John chapter 6. After the crowds kind of reject Jesus and they walk away, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, you know, do you guys want to leave too? Are you going to leave too? And Peter says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Um, Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for your son, Jesus, who is the word made flesh. Um, I ask that you would open open our eyes to Jesus. Um, I pray that you would bring healing and deliverance today to everyone in this room who is experiencing suffering and oppression. And I pray, above all that, that you would give us all life in your son and that we would trust in that and that we would fix our eyes on the hope that we have of ultimately resurrection where we will be free and we will be healed. And if anyone here is in need of healing, I pray that you would move in them and move in uh, the body here to be ministers of that healing in the way that Jesus was. Let me ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.